Uh, G'day, Dave here, and uh, I'm coming to you from my study because the recording at church didn't work uh, last night. So here we are looking at the fifth in our series of the Bible in 10. We've looked at God, the creator, and how he made a, a beautiful world and everything is good. We've looked at human sin and rebellion, how Adam and Eve turned their back upon God and the world is now subjected to frustration. We've looked at the promises made to Abraham, how God didn't give up on the world, but he promised to effectively kind of start again with Abraham's descendants and made great promises about people and land and blessing. Uh, we've seen the promises last week made to David, uh, how David's son would be the one who would rule over God's throne forever and who would build a temple, build a house for the Lord. And this week we're going to be looking at Solomon. But I want to start by mentioning to you a couple of names and, uh, and get you to have a think about these people. They'll be known to you, I suspect. The first name is Lance Armstrong. Uh, you go back to 2005 and Lance Armstrong has just won his seventh consecutive Tour de France after recovering uh, from some significant cancer. Absolutely at the top of his game. I mean, there's nobody who can come close to Lance Armstrong. He in winning consecutive Tour de France, is doing something that nobody has ever done before and never done since in the same way. And uh, as you look back at Lance Armstrong, for all of his greatness now, what you discover is he was a man who was a drug cheat, performance-enhancing drugs, and he's been stripped of all of his titles. I'll give you another name, Harvey Weinstein. Now, that probably uh, evokes a reaction immediately, but take you back a few years, and here's a man who is the absolute pinnacle of success in Hollywood. Uh, he's produced, uh, executive produced over 200 movies, many of them absolute blockbusters. He's produced a bunch of others. He's directed a couple of movies. He's won all kinds of Academy and Emmy Awards and so on. He is really a success story the great producer of Hollywood blockbusters. But of course now, when we think of Harvey Weinstein, we think of the Me Too movement. We think about one who abused women again and again. We think about one who's actually serving 39 years in jail for rape and for sexual abuse. You see, what can look very good on the outside often hides what's going on on the inside. And we're going to see that today with, uh, with Solomon. Well, let's have a look at uh, the accounts in the Bible of King Solomon. We're not going to be touching on everything, but I'm going to point you to a few things. First of all, Solomon starts so well. Uh, he asks God for wisdom and God gives him wisdom, extraordinary wisdom. He is known for his wisdom. He is the wisest of all men. And in his wisdom, he does things that create extraordinary impact in the nation of Israel and to the nations around about. And so if you'll pick it up with me at 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the promises to Abraham. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. There's the blessing. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. And these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all of his life. Here is the high point of Israel, and it comes about in fulfillment of God's promises that have been made, first of all, to Abraham, 
But as we read on, we discover also God fulfilling his promises uh, to David. And so as he promised to David that David's son would build, Solomon builds a temple. And this is a very impressive ancient building. I mean, on a grand scale, uh, you have this incredibly large structure and it's, it's built out of, of rocks that have been quarried uh, with timber that's been brought from Lebanon. It's full of precious jewellery, uh, bronze, silver and gold. Uh, you have the Holy of Holies in the centre. You have these incredibly large bronze washing uh, receptacles. You have this altar that's, uh, well, it's not like a barbecue. It's, a, it's much more like a massive great bonfire where people would bring their sacrifices and they'd be burned. And uh, as you look at this, this incredible architectural achievement, um, it's not just Solomon doing well, it's God fulfilling his promise. And so we can read in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 20, uh, that the Lord, this is Solomon speaking, the Lord has kept the promise that he made. I've succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, what I want us to see as we think about this is that God is actually keeping his promises. A promise made to Abraham, people, land, blessing. Promises made to David that his son would build and that there would be blessing to the nations. And that's what we see going on here with Solomon. But what's going on at the outside, what we can observe actually hides what's going on on the inside and things that we can't see. So we, we need to take stock here and a clue that there's something wrong is actually given way back through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is just before God's people go into the promised land. And Moses is kind of giving warnings from God about the future and the future is projecting way forward to the time when there will be kings. And in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 16 to 17, we read these words. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now, there are three things you could argue for, but I think basically there's three things here that a king must not do. Firstly, the king must not take many horses for himself uh, and certainly not go back to Egypt to get the horses because he was told not to go back there. That was the place of slavery. Uh, secondly, the king is not to take for himself many wives uh, lest they lead him astray. And lastly, thirdly, the, the king is not to acquire much silver and gold. So these are, are three warnings about horses from Egypt, uh, about wives, many of them, uh, and including from uh, other nations, other religions where they worship other gods, and lots of silver and gold. So come back to Solomon then and we'll look a little bit deeper. And uh, as we do this, I'm going to pick up on uh, a passage in 1 Kings, chapter, uh, chapter 10 and going into chapter 11. The first has to do with uh, Solomon's wealth. So read it there in, in 1 Kings 10, verse 14 
The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now, I don't know if it's saying too much to think, okay, 666, oh, maybe there's a worry here just in the number. Uh, but because you and I probably don't know how much a talent was, let me say this is the equivalent of 23,000 kilograms of gold uh, a year. So in today's terms, Solomon's kind of salary, if you like, the, the money that he gets for himself is worth over a billion dollars every year on today's terms. And uh, what's more, in verse 27, the king has made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. So strike one. Secondly, uh, in 1 Kings 10, verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Now, this is probably a little more than he needed. Uh, but as we read on, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kui. Strike two. And then in 1 Kings 11 and verse 3 and 4, Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Now, if he's got 700 wives of royal birth, uh, these are people who have been born into royal families in other kingdoms. And so Solomon is acquiring wives from all over the known world. And on the outside, it looks like hmm, pretty good political strategy to kind of marry into the family of all of the other nations. And, and you have a certain control and influence in that way. But notice their wives led him astray. And as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Strike three. So the promise that got made uh, way back in Deuteronomy, sadly, has been fulfilled in Solomon. Not blessing, but sin, idolatry, counterfeit gods. That's what's going on. And uh, if, you, if you really want to get to the heart of the problem, um, you see it here expressed in verses 4 and 9 to 10 of 1 Kings 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, the problem for Solomon wasn't just that he was wealthy, that he was powerful, uh, that he had extraordinary influence. It's not just that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's... A deeper problem it's the problem of the heart and that I think should come as a warning to us because what we see with Solomon on a grand scale can also be impacting us uh, in whatever circumstances of life we may be in none of us of course are Solomon and so on the one hand it's easy to go well yeah you know so many of the great ones they're, they're the ones who crash but deep down, it's the heart problem of turning aside from God, not listening to God, not trusting in God, but listening to the desires of our own heart, listening to what everybody around about us is saying we should live for and making gods of things that are good, but they're not God. And we'll come back to this. Where, does things, uh, where do things go from this point? Well, sadly, they go from bad to worse. 
And so if we pick it up a little further along in 1 Kings 11, uh, verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe from the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. See, the, the high point here with Solomon, it's fleeting. Uh, he, he crashes, there's disaster. Uh, not just him, but his son, uh, Rehoboam. You get the divided kingdom. You get now... Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel in the north, two tribes of Judah in the south. And before too long, the other empires come in and put pressure and invade and the 10 northern tribes get dispersed. Uh, a, few, um, a few hundred years uh, after this time, 200 years or so, uh, you discover that the southern tribes, the tribe of Judah, uh, Jerusalem as capital, is raised to the ground and the people are captive in Babylon and we'll look at this next week but the situation historically looks like it's going up but sadly because of the state of the human heart is going down now I, I want to pause and move from Solomon to me from Solomon to you I, I want us to think about the lessons the warnings what we can see going on for Solomon and how that can impact us because in many ways the the three things that Solomon gets wrong these three strikes uh, are common temptations to us today and what he does is he takes good things you know, there's nothing wrong with with horses and chariots um, nothing wrong with having a wife uh, nothing wrong with having money and he makes them an excess. He, he effectively creates an idol of these things and worships them rather than God. And, and when you think about it, these uh, images for Solomon are really a picture of money, sex and power. And I've noticed uh, just looking at some of the books that are around at the moment, books by prominent Christian authors like the late Tim Keller, and like John Piper, they speak about these three things of money, sex, and power as being counterfeit gods. Uh, they're great things that God gives us to be used well and wisely and humbly for God's purposes, but they become terrible tyrants. And we end up worshipping the good thing and not the God who gave us the good things. So how can we respond? <clears throat> well, I think, first of all, recognising the temptation. And maybe uh, you, uh, like me, feel some of these temptations. I mean, take uh, money, for example. Money, of course, it's not just the worship of money. It's what money provides. It provides um, opportunity, it provides security. It gives us um, the capacity to do the things that we want to do. And there's something good about, about money as a means to being able to do good things. And yet God warns us again and again in Scripture about the fact that you cannot serve both God and money. Because when it comes to serving, they are competing gods. 
money becomes an idol. And the people of Israel should have recognized this. I mean, way back when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, the people and Aaron are building a golden calf and worshipping it. And Jesus himself taught so often warning about the dangers of chasing after money. He tells a parable about a, a guy who had absolutely everything and he was just delighting in the fact that he could sit back and enjoy life because he'd secured his future. And then in the story, God calls him a fool because this very night his life will be demanded from him. You see, to live for things is a, is a tragic loss. But to live for God enables us to enjoy the things that he gives. Or relationships. I mean, so many people are discontent about relationship. I want to be in a relationship. I, I, I just want to find that right person and then life will be good. And other people who are thinking, if only I could get out of this relationship, then my life would be better. And of course, we, we mess up God's plans for sex, the uh, whole pornography industry is damaging so many lives and it's starting so young. People are caught in powerful drives and addictions and uh, uh, as with any addictive behaviours, they're never satisfying. And what we do is we take good things and we make them an idol, even a good thing of marriage or the good thing of family. And we live for that rather than living for God who gives them. And power or maybe another way of looking at what he's doing here with power, is he's actually creating alliances, he's securing his future, he's, he's uh, indemnifying himself, he's creating uh, insurance for the future. And how much of our life is tied up with that as well? I've got to protect my interest. And so that leads to people being hurt, and that leads to me treating people as commodities, and that leads to abuse, and that leads to using people and... We think that if we can only get our own way, then we'll be happy. And sadly, this goes on all the time. And, and it, it's not just out there that it goes on. It goes on in here. I mean, one of the sad realities of, of looking at what's taken place in churches over recent years is you've found that these three areas of money, sex and power have been abused. And so churches that have a name and a reputation for for being greedy for money they're only in it for the money and of course these these pyramid schemes and and the blessing that's promised if you send in money there's terrible things that are being done in the name of christian faith and then there's fraud and deception and just greed in it in its heart we also see that uh, there's been problems with sex you get high profile Pastors who are brought down because they've been found out to be living double lives, committing adultery, having affairs, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. You, you see pictures of, of people who've been abusing others, uh, people who've, who've said things like, um, you either get on the bus or you'll be run over by the bus. And uh, this picture of their control and their power and their drivenness ending up abusing the people that God is calling them to serve. Well, friends, there's, there's problems out there. There's problems in here. And I think each of us, it might not be the areas of money, sex and power, where your greatest temptations lie. But no doubt there will be temptation. And this part of Scripture, I think, is a warning to us that we need to avoid disaster by asking for help. 
asking for help, fundamentally asking for help from God himself. And that means to pray. Uh, You might also want to ask for help from your brothers or sisters uh, because it can be so hard in the battle of sin to try and do it on your own. And the Bible encourages us to actually be helping one another who is caught in sin, but to be careful that we don't get caught ourselves. And uh, we need to be a community where people can share their struggles, where people can ask one another for prayer and for help, where people can uh, help each other to focus on Jesus and not on the things that we're tempted by. So let me, uh, let me finish here by encouraging us to be people of prayer and to suggest three areas of prayer. Firstly, uh, to pray for wisdom. I mean, Solomon's known to be the wise one, And yet his heart goes astray. And there's something in the New Testament that shows us that what we consider wise is often so different to what God considers to be wise. What God considers to be true wisdom is his son dying on a cross to save people. Uh, To the Jews, well, that's, that's a real stumbling block. Because how can you have a crucified Messiah? To the Greeks, that just sounds foolishness. I mean... Here you are worshipping one that was killed by hanging on a cross. I mean, that doesn't sound too smart, but God says it's actually the wisdom of God and the power of God. And Paul says that he, he preached Christ crucified. And if you wanted to, to know God, if you want the help of living for God, then you've got to start by coming to God for wisdom and you find that wisdom in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's where true wisdom is to be found. And the wisest thing you can ever do with your life is to acknowledge that you've turned away from God and to ask God for forgiveness and to look to his death and resurrection, Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross as God's payment for your sin to make it possible for you to be forgiven and to enter into a relationship with him again. So wisdom of God in Christ. But the scriptures also tell us to pray for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, you should pray. And James goes on later to describe the nature of wisdom. And there's a key word. If you really want to know what wisdom is, um, it's found in this key word, humility. To be truly wise is to be humble. The humble person is the one who is actually living in wisdom. Because we're not God, are we? We don't know everything. It's not all about serving ourselves. No, we, we, if we come to know humility, we come to restore our lives into reality. That is, God is God and we are not. And we can humbly receive God's blessing. We can humbly receive God's help uh, if we'll acknowledge our struggle, if we'll acknowledge our sin and we'll turn to him. So prayer for wisdom. Secondly, I mean, we do well, I think, to listen to Jesus' words uh, in the way that he taught his disciples to pray. You know the prayer, um, our Father in heaven? Well, he continues down in that prayer to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you pray that God will lead you not into temptation? Do you pray that uh, you will stay away from the things that you're tempted by? Do you you pray that you won't be sucked into thinking that that true security can be found in money or in a career or in investments or in superannuation? Do you pray that God will help you to really 
understand that you are his creature created by him to have a relationship with him. Do you pray that God will help you in your struggle against porn, against lust? Do you pray that God will help you not to be greedy, but inversely to be generous, to be giving from, from what he's just entrusting you with, because it's not really ours anyway? Do you pray that God will help you to be humble in putting others' needs before your own? Do you pray that God will lead you not into temptation? And then lastly, um, do you pray that God will make you truly thankful? This used to be a grace that we prayed as I was growing up. Um, for what we are about to receive, make us truly thankful. I used to think that was kind of wrong, that we should be saying, for what we are about to receive, we are truly thankful. But deep down, I, I think, no, the problem is often that I'm not. <laughs> I'm not truly thankful. And so to be praying that God will make us truly thankful, I think is to be praying for contentment that God will help us to appreciate what we've got, to show gratitude for the things that he's given us. It's a prayer for contentment. And, and it helps us to not fall into that if-only trap. You know that one? If, if only I had this, if only I had my own house, if only I had a better car, if only I had a better wife, if only I had a better, you know, and, and you can live in discontent, thinking that if your circumstances changed, then things would be better. And God says, the thing that needs to change is your heart. My heart needs to change. I need to learn the secret of contentment. And to remind myself that in Jesus, I've been given everything. God's spirit now dwells within me. God is my father. I've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven. And so God, please fill my heart. Fill my heart with the truth. Fill my heart with your love. Help me to appreciate how wide and deep and, and high is your love. Help me to know deep down all that you have done for me and all the promises that you have kept. You're actually committed to me, God, and I don't deserve any of it. Friends, let's pray that we can avoid the temptations that led Solomon's heart astray. And let us pray that our heart will be filled with the joy of knowing God through Jesus Christ.